Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here, Electronically Yours, same as every other week. Um, today's guest is uh, a little bit off-piste for what we normally do, but I think you'll find it incredibly fascinating. His name is Richard Evans, and he has written a book called Listening to the Music That Machines Make, Inventing the Electronic Pop. 1978 to 83. I did quite a lot of interviews for this book with him, but it's an encyclopedic examination of what we all love about that period with electronic pop. And in fact, he's created a series of playlists that go with the book, which are on uh, Spotify. Um, so it's called Listening to the Music Machines Make, Inspiration, that's number one. Revolution is number two. Transition is number three. And Mainstream is number four. So it's this idea of what caused it to happen, this kind of blossoming of electronic pop from kind of 78 onwards. So first playlist is inspiration, second playlist is the start of the revolution. Third one is kind of transition towards a kind of more mainstream thing. And then the final uh, playlist is called Mainstream. Well worth listening to. And also go and buy the book. It's absolutely awesome and uh, will keep you occupied for a long time. It's a big book. It's great. So, here he is, let's get started, Richard Evans. How are you? I'm alright, thank you. Yeah, all good. And how's the book going? I think it's going alright. It's like a kind of make it my business not to find out too much. Me too. So yeah, I don't ask for sales or anything like that. It's like, it, it you know, it, it sells what it sells. You know, it's like I'm doing my bits and pieces and, you know, that's as much as I can do. It's out there, it does its thing. It, it feels like it's all right, but actually I've got no idea. I think if you, if you can go to bed with a clear conscience going, I've done as much promo and I've done, I've explained in as many different uh, platforms that I can what what it is then it, yeah it, let the dice fall where they may that's that's really my view exactly yeah no it feels like the win having done it you know it's like having exactly. it having it finished out there that's that's that was the battle you know anything more than this is just sort of you know it's bon it's bonus exactly all right let's start at the at the top then how on earth did you become so fascinated well let's talk let's give the podcast list, I'll put it in the details of the podcast. Yeah, of course, yeah. Let's discuss the title of the book. Let's do the plug first, shall we? If you, <laughs> okay. if you do that, and then people okay. know what we're talking about. Okay, so my book is called Listening to the Music the Machines Make, Inventing Electronic Pop, 1978 to 1983. And it's published by Omnibus Press, and it is available from all good places where you buy your books right now. Is it an audio book as well? Uh, it's not an audio book, and I'm relieved actually, and I'm partly relieved because of you. Yeah, um, it's because a we're... fucking nightmare, <laughs> honestly. But, uh, I remember you telling me but doing it is 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 um, grindingly grim. I have to say, for me, anyway. Um, yeah, I remember you telling me it took days and days and days, oh, and yeah. I thought three and a half my, my book's like twice as long as yours. It's like I haven't got that that, that amount of time to give. <laughs> you probably do. You probably you've got a very kind of radio friendly voice, so yeah. I well, think. thank you. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so we're going to approach this slightly differently. First of all, I'm going to do a bit of biographical stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, But then I want to look at and discuss with you the the uh, Spotify playlist that, that has been created to go with the book. And we'll kind of go okay. through various staging points and, and things that you think are more significant than others about this period. Because I think an awful... A lot of our kind of core audience for the podcast is would be very interested in that, uh, me included. So, um, so let's say, how did how on earth did you get fascinated with this particular subject? Oh, I like going back to when you were a teenager or whatever. What what led you towards electronic music or machine made music? Yeah, it's an interesting one, actually, because I never really considered myself someone who was a fan of electronic music for quite a long time. It's like I was a big fan of music. Uh, music was a really exciting thing for me. Um, and I grew up in a household where my parents, they weren't really interested in music. So there wasn't music in the house. The radio wasn't on playing music, you know, so it's like I wasn't really aware of anything. And uh, I grew up in Chelmsford in Essex. And um, I sort of, you, you know, you have those those little moments in your life where something sort of clicks into place. Mm. And I can remember going shopping with the family on a Saturday morning and we were in Chelmsford Town Centre and there's a fountain in the middle of the, um, uh, the shopping centre. And there was these punks hanging around it. And it was kind of my first experience of, of seeing punks. And they were like the proper punks, you know, with the huge mohawks and the spiky hair and the leather and the chains and the boots and stuff. And I just thought they looked like alien creatures, you know, from, from, from another galaxy. I must have been about, I don't know, nine or something like that, that sort, that sort of age. Um, and they had these leather jackets on and on the back were all the band names. Uh, it's like, I don't know why I remember this, but one of them was the, flunk, the Flux of Pink Indians, which no, was Derek no. Burkett's band. And Derek Burkett went on to create, to create One Little Indian Records. And for whatever reason, it's like these names just felt like something beamed in from another world, you know? And I was just like, God, this is amazing. Um, and I just sort of, as I, as, I, as I sort of, you know, got a little bit older and started to discover that this was to do with music, uh, and then I started to sort of delve into that side of things more. And, you know, I started listening to the radio. I started listening to John Peel, you know, because that's what you did back then. Yeah, exactly, because there was kind of nowhere else. Um, and my dad used to, he worked in London, um, and he used to go to, he used to go past a, a magazine stall. Uh, and when they sort of finished selling the magazines, they'd sell them off cheap. And, you know, it's like, so he'd bring back, you know, the enemy or a melody maker or a smash hits or something, you know, from like three weeks, four weeks previously, which he'd sort of picked up for 2p. Uh, and I just sort of started sort of devouring this stuff. And I just started, you know, piecing it all together for myself um, in that sort of naive, odd sort of way where you just pick up, you know, a little bit from here and a little bit from there and nothing really sort of connects or, or makes any sense. Can I just uh, stop so you there? One sec, one sec. Uh, I think it's important <clears throat> to acknowledge that we live in a completely different world now. And the idea, you know, whenever we find anything that's slightly interesting, we just do our own research online. It's just a given now. You can find yeah. out in 10 seconds. My wife, for instance, will be watching TV or the news or whatever it is. 
and she's constantly researching stuff on the laptop while watching. And, and you know, back in those days, finding out information and getting going down rabbit holes, if you like, was a difficult thing. Yeah. So I just thought I'd interject. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. Absolutely. And it made it so much more satisfying, I think. It's like, because you put the work in to finding yes. these things. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's like I just sort of gradually started to find things that I liked and I sort of, you know, grew into this into, into this thing. And my listening was, was and still is kind of indiscriminate. It's like I, I don't just sit here listening to Orbital. You know, yeah. it's like I'm just as likely to be listening to Buddy Holly or yeah. R.E.M. Or, 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 or something else. You know, it's like it's, I'm not I'm not an electro head as as such. Right. Um, but as it sort of settled into my music tastes, I started to realise that the things I was listening to actually do have not necessarily an electronic edge to them, but like a modern edge. Yes. I, I kind futurist, of wasn't... Dare we say. Yeah, futurist, dare we say. You know, it's like I wasn't really interested in anything pre-punk at that point because it just all seemed so old-fashioned and, and not something that I would really spend time with when there was all this new, fresh, exciting stuff. Um, so it's like I think that I was probably influenced more by production, although I didn't know it at the time, um, mm -hmm. and technology, although I didn't know it at the time, than necessarily by the music. So I sort of settled into this world where I listened to The Smiths and The Cure and Depeche Mode and um, and because I was in Chelmsford, Knights of Reb are from Chelmsford, and they're a couple of yeah, years that. older than me. <laughs> yeah and it's like you know they they would play gigs and it's like i saw them at the, the the ymca and and that i think that was my sort of journey into something properly electronic because wow. through them i found front 242 um and the young gods um and you know the bands along along those sorts of lines that sort of harder industrial beat sort of music um and and, and that became like a no, it wasn't my sole musical adventure, but it was a very strong, you know, route uh, through, through my musical adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah. in an impossible way, um, I, I found myself working in the music industry by mistake, as almost everyone does, or at least almost all the right people do. Um, and I sort of managed, was in a situation where I could immerse myself in everything, um, you know, which was fantastic. Uh, and, and where we uh, were... Again, uh, I started working at London Records um, right at the beginning of the 90s. Uh, I did a degree in um, in typographic design. Oh, nice. Uh, and, yeah, which was fantastic. And it was, it was, it was fascinating to me. And I, I, and I always expected that I would end up working in that field because I absolutely loved it. But there was a recession at the time when I graduated. And there was, you know, that's, that's the sort of work that goes first. You know, it's like that's yeah. the, 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 you're, you're first against the line if you're a designer. And, and I needed to find something else. And I found an advert for a job at London Records as a press officer. Right. And I had no idea what a press officer really was. I had no idea how the music industry works. But I thought, I've got some records. I like music. I can string a sentence together. I'll apply for it. And I applied for it and I got an interview. And then I got another interview. And then they called me and said, look, it's, down, it's you or someone else. You know, it's like out of the 50 people that we started talking to, you know, it's you or someone else. You've got one more interview. And I, and I went for this interview and I didn't get the job. 
Oh, but I was so incensed. I know. <laughs> it's like I was so indignant that I'd got this far and then fallen at the fence that I just sort of I, I badgered them to, to 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 employ me, and they took me on as a sort of you know general dog's body, um, and and gradually I sort of got my feet under the desk. Uh, I worked in um, international promotions to start with. Uh, did that for a few years, and then I was the uh, product manager, product and manage, marketing manager for. The, the sort of the indie and the rock stuff that London was putting out at the time. Um, but it was fantastic because, you know, it's like I was working with music across the spectrum. You know, it's yeah. like one day I was working with E17, one day I was working with Shakespeare's sister, one day I was working with Goldie, you know, Orbital came through there as well, the Utah Saints came through there as well, New Order and the Factory Artists came through there as well. You know, so it was the A&R people at that time, the big ones in London. Well, it would be Tracy Bennett would be would be the main one. Um, Pete Pete, Pete Tong on the dance side um, would would be the other one. Uh, There was Paul McDonald. um, God, who else was there? It's difficult to remember all the names now. I know Tracy Um, Bennett a little bit. Yeah, he's a one. Yeah, yeah. So 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 I did that, and then I moved to MTV Europe. Um, MTV, because I'd done international promotions, I knew all the people at MTV Europe, and this job came up um, as a talent relations manager. Oh. Uh, and so the job was to in, to basically be the office that interacted with the music industry on behalf of MTV. Right. So it's like all the all the bookings came in through that office. The playlist was operated by that office, uh, and I went to do that for a while. Um, and they sort of brought me in under the auspices of being someone who can champion new music. Um, so that MTV are there at the, at the, at the bottom of, of someone's career and, and you know, can, can sort of develop with them. It turned out not really to be that job as such. And after a couple of years, I got a little bit disillusioned and I left MTV and set up my own business, um, which is called The Fan Base, which is what I still do today, uh, which is dedicated to connecting artists with their audiences. Um, and I've been doing that, that since then? 19... What's the core of that business? How does that work nowadays? I think, well, it's, 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 a, it's a weird one, actually, because there isn't one question, but well, there isn't one answer to the question. It's like when, when I set it up, what I, do you, you remember this, back in, back in the day of CDs, every time you bought your CD, once you'd managed to get the cellophane off, which was obviously a bit of a battle in its own right, you always got a little card saying, send this card back for information about your artists, you know, releases and everything. And I used to send these cards back and I never got anything from anyone. Right. And I thought, when I was at London, doing marketing at London, I thought, this is a really good resource. It's like, if you can connect with people directly, yeah. then you can kind of cut out everything else. You know, it's like you can you can tell them exactly what you want to tell them no, in the language you want to Direct marketing, exactly that. And, and that's that's how I started. Um, and I, I had a sort of a, a short list of, of artists I wanted to work with, and I ended up working with about half of them. Right. Um, and then over the years, the, the job and the things that I do have mutated in all sorts of different directions. Um, but everything I do is kind of different depending on which artist I'm working with at the time. Um, so, yeah, diff- difficult one to answer specifically. Right. But the, the, obviously the power of social media now is huge. Um, yeah. And in terms of connecting and keeping in contact and servicing the fan base, that must be the major tool now, presumably. Is that right? 
I, I think I think it absolutely is. Yeah, and and I'm lucky, as you know, I work for Eurasia, um, yeah. and I'm lucky they have always invested in someone to take care of that side of things for them. Uh, and I think that's a big part of their longevity and the, the position that they find themselves in now is that they've always respected and, um, uh, and acknowledged the, the power of, the, of their fan base. Oh, it's um, incredible, Richard. I mean, when, yeah. I mean, I didn't actually meet, uh, I've told you about this before, but I didn't actually meet Vince until we did the I Say, I Say, I Say album together. And uh, amazingly, and... Um, the first thing he did was go and see them live because we were going to uh, support them on tour. So I went to see them live and I was going, I've, in my history of going to see live gigs, I think there's only one other act I've ever seen that's got a, a more, a stronger connection with their audience live. And there, and it's all based on this kind of egalitarian, correct me if I'm wrong, you may have a different view, but on this kind of egalitarian view that they wanted to somehow dissolve that barrier between the the performers and the audience, and we are all one, and we're all in this together. And I fucking loved that. And I and that was just at the start of our live journey, which we've been doing for 25 years now. And yeah. that, for me, was a guiding principle for us throughout that entire period, and we and Glenn as well. And we've gone through and we've nurtured a similar kind of relationship with our audience, with M17. And yeah. uh, it really, Erasure were the inspiration for us on that front. And the fact that you say that they, uh, from a very early point, I mean, it's all part of the same DNA, I think. If they take care to nurture their audience in every respect, on every platform, that's why people are so insanely loyal to them. I mean, they turn up to yeah. all their gigs, don't they? Every yeah. time they go on tour, it sells out. And yeah. I, the reason I mention this is not just about Erasure, but it's an example of uh, of what an incredibly powerful uh, uh, economic tool it is to engage with audiences properly and seriously, yes. authentically. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so, I think, so, so to come back to your question about electronic music, um, I think starting to work with Erasure, which I did in 2009, I started working with them. That kind of brought me into their electronic world. Um, and because Erasure, Erasure, as you know, are self-managed. Um, and when I started working with them, they had a manager uh, who they parted ways with after a couple of years. Um, and because I was it, because I was there, and because I have this background of music industry where I've you know amassed knowledge and information and contacts, um, I, I've sort of gradually become all sorts of different things for them. Um, you oh, know, when right. people ask me what I do for Erasure, I, I tell them that I run the office because I basically do. You know, it's like Erasure's business comes through me and Vince and Andy make all the decisions, but, you know, the, I, I'm, the, I'm the foot soldier yeah, uh, yeah. of, of, of You're the Erasure operation. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, the, the fantastic thing was that I, I was able to sort of start meeting people in the vicinity of Erasure. So, you know, like yourself, you know, for example, you know, it's like you were doing the illustrious box set 
you know, with with Vince when yeah. when we first started talking, you know. So it's like I sort of picked up all these people and uh, it reconnected me with the things that they'd done. Um, and that sort of put me back onto my electronic path uh, wow. again, you know. And, and, and at that point, I was, I, I'd written one book previously um, called Remember the 80s. I'll yeah, so I remember the eighties was my book. I had a, I used to have a website called remember the eighties dot com, um, and that was set up in two thousand and two. Uh, and this is, this is a, a, another important strand, actually, and hopefully an interesting one. Um, in in two thousand and two, an eighties artist came to me um, as as the fan base and said, "I'm thinking of making music again, but I've got no idea how to reconnect to my old audience." Um, you know, can you help? And I, I, I sort of went away and thought about it. And I thought that this particular artist um, wasn't someone who would have an easy audience to reconnect with, although they had a lot of success at the time. Uh, and I thought, wouldn't it be brilliant if there was one place where you could get all the information about what that generation of artists are doing now? Not retro stuff, but the, 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 their, their, their current careers. Uh, and, I, and I said to this artist, that, look, it, why don't we set up a website uh, and see if we can attract an audience for 80s music in general? Um, and then, you know, you can sort of be like drill down into that to find the individual audiences for, for other acts. Um, you know, so, so, so I set this, this, this website up. Uh, it's called rememberthe80s.com. Uh, it was in 2002, which is before the 80s was fashionable again. That's right. Um, and it was like early days of the internet as well, actually, because I, I had to sort of teach myself to sort of, you know, to, to build this thing. And it was very clunky and primitive, but it worked and people were interested. Um, and because it was sort of post Britpop, you know, in this sort of horrible disconnect, disconnected time from, you know, from, from artists, electronic artists in particular, um, PR companies and artists were really interested in getting involved because um i was connecting them to the the right set of people so you know i interviewed lots of people and you know i always had competitions to run and you know sign cds and concert tickets and stuff so it just sort of snowballed um and when the 80s started to become fashionable again um the media were sort of looking around and they're like oh remember the 80s they they know what's going on uh, and I so I did a sort of a little run of interviews and things for the music for for the uh, the for the press and I did a big piece about uh, about the 80s for the Observer. Um, and in response to that, a publisher got in touch and said, oh, we think there's a book in what you're doing with Remember the 80s. Um, you know, would you like to write one? So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. You know, it's like I never had never had any um, ambition to write a book before, um, but it sounded like something that might be fun. Um, so I said yes, and sort of got some of the interviews that I'd done, and I sort of did some playlists of music from the various years of the 80s. And, you know, just, and it's kind of like, it became a book, which came out in 2008, I think. Um, and it's a big sort of coffee table book. It's mostly pictures, you know, it's like Rubik's Cubes and Baywatch and, you know, Neighbours and Jason and Kylie and all that sort of thing is all covered. Um, so not a cool book, but a fun book. Right. Um, but I think the important thing about all of that was that I thought it made me realise that someone like me can write a book. Yeah. And people can. So, you know, it's like you've written this book. What's your next book going to be? 
And I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't write books. It's not my thing. But then I started working with Erasure and then I started reconnecting with electronic music. And um, I read all the biographies, you know, the musician biographies that I can get my hands on. Uh, and I started to realize that maybe there was an opportunity to tell everyone's story in one place. Yeah. Um, and, and, and partly it's like, I realized that books were coming out from bands and it's like different band members would have different memories of the same thing, um, which I thought was quite interesting and, uh, and, and also quite odd. And I thought it would be great to go back to the original source material, the, to back to the time the best I could, and find out how the story developed then, rather than telling it from a sort of a 45 year, you know, perspective now. Uh, and this all sort of like started to sort of move around in my head. Uh, and I wrote uh, a, a sample piece, and then I did nothing with it for years, literally years. Uh, and I sort of came back to it every now and again, um, told myself I was writing a book, was really not writing a book at all. Uh, and then I had some time, I can't remember why, but I had a block of time come free. I thought, I'm gonna send this to someone and see if I can get it, get, get it published or I'm gonna give up on the whole project. Uh, wow. And I, I finished a proposal and uh, I talked to a friend who worked in publishing and they introduced me to Matthew Hamilton, who you know, of course. Yes. Um, because he, he, he is your agent as well as my agent. That's right. Uh, and um, he said, yeah, I think there's something in this. Let's send it to some publishers. Uh, and he sent it around. Several people were interested. Uh, we signed the book to Omnibus and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, Omnibus were in the uh, in, in the uh, list of publishers who were interested in putting my book out. And right. it came down to Omnibus and and um, Hachette, you know, and, and in the end yeah. they were offering a bit more money, so I went with them. But Omnibus were very, um, I found them very uh, noble in their acceptance. You know, right. and I also, to be honest, liked Omnibus as um, a, a kind of slate of, of, of things they were bringing out, even before your book. I just thought mm. they got some interesting people on there, you know. So uh, yeah, anyway, just, yeah. just to finish this part, um, I've been thinking for a while, and I think I'm going to activate it because um, you know I my, my autobiography is volume one, and I was people are going, when are you going to do volume two? Really like it, blah, and I'm going, yeah, when hell freezes over, unless we have another COVID <laughs> epidemic. But anyway, no, that's not quite true. If they gave me enough money to take some time off, I'd do it. But anyway, but I'm more interested in looking at this podcast that we're doing, not this one particularly, but the whole swathe of them, 150 of them now, and writing a, book. Yeah, writing a book of, like, learnings from what I've learned, you know, because this is an educational process for me. I mean, having in-depth conversations with a whole bunch of people who I admire and and are not from my specific part of the world, creatively. I've learned so much. It's been quite an education. And um, I want to share that with people. And I think it could be entertaining as well, because it's got a lot of famous names involved. So I'm going to approach yeah. Matthew and uh, let's see. I want to call it something like what I have learned. What I have learned. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be absolutely fantastic. I can totally see that working brilliantly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and as a consumer of your podcast, um, it you know, like you were just saying for yourself, it's like it's introduced me to people that I wouldn't necessarily have known anything yeah. about. It's like literally today, this afternoon, I was listening to the Josh Wink. Um, yeah, he's edition. a fascinating guy. What what an interesting guy, and it's like I've never considered what his story might be. You no, know, and it's like you. it's. Yeah. And there's yeah. a guy. So, it's, do you know uh, Jack Dangers? Have you heard of him? I, I'm really looking right. forward to the Jack Dangers one. No, yeah. it's really good. Well, anyway, that's coming out tomorrow. Uh, yeah, not tomorrow for the podcast listeners, but um, and um, he's fascinating because he comes from more of a kind of nerdy collectory kind of side of the dance thing so he's like an obsessive collector of uh, of of kind of uh curious videos uh, and film and but also uh, curious sound sound recordings and and that incorporates into you know the whole mm. beat manifesto thing you know and uh, it's just fascinating and he's from yeah the UK lives in San Francisco now, so that's a whole different trip as well. Anyway, that sort of thing, I would never, were it not for recommendations from, you know, the people who listen to the podcast, I would have never have even known about it. But I think his work's amazing. Likewise with Josh yeah, And it's, a lot of it is a bit like your book. It's about connecting the dots of creativity, not only separated by geographical distance, but by conceptual distance. And how these all interlink. It's not a jigsaw. It's a, more like a kind of one of those amazing point cloud things, you know, that you see. <laughs> you can navigate through. It's like a universe. And uh, <laughs> and that's the way I view it. And I think people will find a book based on that quite interesting. Anyway, um, so going back to yeah. you, which is more important. Um, so where, where do we get up to? So Erasure and then you... And what and, and what led you to write the book? Is there anything else you want to say about that before we move on to discussing the actual the actual work of the book, as it were? No, I think that's that. I think that I've, I've, I've covered it enough. I think you have. Yeah. I think you have. Probably okay. too too much length. No, 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 not at all. So I've got the the playlist in front of me called "Listening to the Music the Machines Make," oh, okay. which you can. Yeah, I should. Have. I should open this as well, shouldn't I? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, just go to Spotify. Anybody who's listening, and open that playlist. It's public. There's no special access needed, and it's an amazing list of. Um, did you put it together, or did somebody else help you with this? Uh, no, I, I put it. I put it together. Yeah. Oh. So there's 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 four of them, um, and there's the, the four book is. Of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the book is the book is divided into sections. So the book, um, the first section is called Inspiration, um, which is uh, the things that were happening before 1978 um, that sort of fed into the electronic revolution that I write about. Uh, and the second part is called Revolution. And that's 1978 to 1979. The third part is Transition, which is 1980 to 1981. Uh, and then the fourth part is mainstream when everything started to become, you know, the mainstream, uh, 1982 to 1983. Um, so oh. there's actually a playlist for each of those four sections. Oh, how come um, I've only got the 
it just says listening to the music machines make and it's six hours long six and a half hours long 86 oh really oh. yeah anyway hmm. uh, anyway yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it starts with the model, craft work. Uh, is that where you start your story in the book? Um, in the book, um, I was I was I was quite keen when I first start, sort of sat, sat down and started to think about how to structure the book. It made sense for it to be chronological because that's just keeps it organised and keeps it together. Um, it, it seemed that I was trying to write about so much stuff that unless I had something fairly strong in terms of organization to hold it all together, then I'd get myself into all sorts of trouble. Um, so I, I, when I first started writing, um, my subtitle for the book was From Being Boiled to Blue Monday. Oh, right. Um, because, right. Because that's, you know, it, it sounded quite good and it, those, those words fitted together quite nicely. Uh, and I, when I started writing the book, I got in touch with Daniel Miller uh, at Mute Records, um, because I wanted to ask him some questions about some stuff that I was writing about. Uh, and in that conversation, um, I, I mentioned this subtitle. And he said, well, of course, you know, being boiled wasn't the first. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Area. In 1978, it was actually the normal with the yeah. uh, TVC warm leatherette. And so at that point, my subtitle fell apart uh, oh. and my timeline went a little bit longer. So, so basically, I, I decided that I wanted to start the, the, the main part of the book uh, with the normal. Um, and the idea was to go all the way through uh, to 1983, at which point I wanted to finish the book um, with uh, Blue Monday, because Blue Monday felt like a record that pointed towards everything that happened next. Um, you know, right. it was electronic, but it was also sort of hip hop. It also had that electro vibe to it. You know, that whole sort of Arthur Bakery American yeah. style. Yeah, that's um, right. So, so those, those were the two ends of, of of the book. And then, in adding to to that further, I put in a section at the beginning before that to say what happened first, and then a section at the end of the book to say what happened after 1983 in, in a very sort of broad strokes because it all got quite complicated at that point. Um, so Oh, hold on. So, right. So I've just found something out here. So I typed okay. in listening to the music that machines make and it's a different playlist. Ah, okay. Someone else has made a playlist. Yeah. So I'm now actually on your profile, which has got the four different playlists. So I'll go back to that. Right. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, so on the first one, inspiration is a lot of glam, a lot of Bowie, uh, Kraftwerk, yeah. of course, Roxy Music, Donna Summer, Love to Love You Baby, I Feel Love, which is just such a seminal thing for everyone concerned. Uh, and Ultravox, of course, which um, I think they don't quite get, the, the first version of Ultravox don't quite get the credit that they are due because they were a bit too early for public taste to have caught up if you know what i mean what do you think about that comment yeah, yeah no i completely agree with that it's like i kind of feel sorry for for ultravox because they, they were so ahead of their time yeah um they were they were so different that the 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 the, the, the music establishment kind of was unable to accept them at that time um and then that i think the, the, the lack of success is probably part of the reason why John Fox left um, and Ultravox fragmented uh, and then yeah. reformed the second Ultravox with Midjure, 
uh, and and actually got some of that 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 commercial um, success, if not cri cri critical success, because they didn't really get the critical success that they yeah. should have deserved. I mean, I um, was the, yeah. I, I was a big fan of the early Ultravox and less so of the second version. Mm. Although I'm great mm. mates with Midge, and I love Visage and all that stuff, and you know we are really close friends. But um, there's a certain uh, element of kind of Genesis pre and post Peter Gabriel for me. You know, it's not quite <laughs> the same. You yeah, know? absolutely. Um, anyway, but yeah, I, I think the the first Ultravox are maligned. Uh, and they're not given the respect as the pioneers that they undoubtedly were, you know. And their sisters of romance album, um, which contains the track just for a moment, which contains the lyric, listening to the music the machines make. That's where that's ah. where the, the, the book comes from. Okay. Um, so, so yeah. let, me go, let me go through this uh, list. And uh, uh, so, popcorn was an enormous influence, obviously. Yes. That was Georgia Moroda's first effort, wasn't it? Am I right in saying that? Was it Georgia Moroda? Uh, no, it wasn't Georgia Moroda. Um, I think he did something, maybe he did something with it afterwards. I thought it was um, or, Georgia Moroda. Or later. Anyway. Jean-Michel Jarre. You're the expert. <laughs> right, um, so I think you're but, the expert as well. I don't know. Well, not really. <laughs> um, but my sisters ha uh, had a single of Telstar. And of course, I was very right. young when that came out, and that had an enormous influence on me. Uh, of course, Doctor Who's yeah. theme, theme from Clockwork Orange, goes without saying. All these things. We are like uh, brothers from another mother, me and you. I mean, this is <laughs> like, a, this could be a list. If I'd have put together a list from this period, Trans Europe Express was, as I said in my autobiography, an enormous influence. Virginia Plain, all the Bowie stuff, and ABBA as well. People forget that, um, yeah. that it was an influence on, on on electronic pop music because they were yes. they, they were quite happy to use synthesizers as well. And of course, I feel loved on a summer. Um, so, out of this first list, inspiration, which would be your most significant choice on that list? Oh, okay. Uh, I, I think maybe it would be "I Feel Love." I think so. Um, yeah, because it was such an extraordinary record and such an extraordinary moment. Uh, and, and actually, I did consider extending the reach of my book to starting in 1977 so I could start I... with I Feel Love. So yeah. it's like I didn't know whether I Feel Love was the end of the thing before or the beginning of the new thing. And, yeah. and actually, I think, I think it's both. Um, and I made the decision to put it in the the inspiration section, um, yeah. but but kind of reluctantly um, yeah. because it it was it was it was so important. It was uh, it was literally for me the, that and uh, Trans Europe Express were the two re records that made me want to do what I did personally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, moving think... on to uh, seventy eight seventy nine Revolution playlist. So I kind of loved all that Tubeway Army stuff. I was a bit oh, yes. of yeah. that and the original Ultravox and then we got Robots and Neon Lights. I, to be honest, I thought personally that uh, Trans Europe Express was better. And by this time, they were going kind of mainstream for me, Cranfork. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you thought about for, that. And then, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think so too. I think it's, it's like it, it's... it's uh, 
for, for me, craft work started with the man machine and then I worked backwards. Yeah. Um, but I think just sort of the, that's because I discovered them through the model when the model was a success in 1981 at the end of, at the end of that year. Uh, and it's like, a, although I was aware of them, I didn't really know what they were or, or what they did. Uh, and, and that that record, the, the model, um, was was kind of one of those epiphany moments for me. You know, it's like right, it, was, right, it right. was another, you know, it, it's so pure and so um, shimmering somehow. You know, it's like you know, I, I mentioned earlier, it's like I, I think possibly I'm influenced unwittingly by more by production uh, and technology yeah. Uh, yeah. Than, than the songs sometimes. And I think that that was exactly an example of this. It, it was it was so utterly other um that it was it, it was fantastic and then i moved backwards and discovered you know trans europe express and and and, and those those other records right, so right. yeah so let's talk about devo because obviously i'm I, well, people who listen to this podcast know that i'm big mates with jerry casali and we hang out together mm. whenever we can uh, and we had in fact had the same management in the early 80s and um i was such a fan of devo in the 70s they 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 revolutionised what I thought was possible live for me. This interaction between yeah. them and live, and and you know, satisfaction and comeback journey and the videos, fucking hell, they were brilliant. And yeah. um, what do you think? What uh, tell me about what role you think Devo had in inspiring people and and the revolution? Oh, I think- I think Devo, kind of like Ultravox, Devo are one of those really important ones that sort of get brushed under the mat a little bit. And it's like, at the, right at the end of 1977, um, the in Sounds magazine, um, Sounds decided they were going to decide what was coming next um, after, yeah. so it was post, you know, what's next. And um, John Savage was the journalist who was sort of charged with, with, with doing this. Uh, and he had you know, f- through being a music journalist, he had received um, Devo's first single, uh, which was, um, oh God, I can't remember which one it was, Jocko Homo, yeah. um, which, which they'd released on their own label, you know, and it's like they was lit- literally selling them out of their garage and driving around to record shops and, you know, getting boxes out of the back of their car. And they'd obviously sent one to the music press uh, and John Savage had received it and he made it his record of the year in 1977. Right. Before it had even been released in the UK. Um, And I think that Devo affected his thinking in this, the the title of the piece that they wrote went across two two episodes, two two editions of Sounds at the end of 1977 uh, called The New Music. Uh, and music was M-U-S-I-C-K. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. More mysterious way. Uh, and um, I think that Devo had come along and kind of changed John Savage's um, trajectory as a, as a journalist, you know, because he was oh. he was quite instrumental in punk. You know, he was, he was a big punk fan and he'd been a champion of punk. But I think he was one of the first also to recognise that punk was over. Um, and it was time for something new. And he he let go in a way that lots of the journalists at the time didn't. Yeah. Uh, and sort of beca- became a voice for this sort of this this new wave of of, of, of experimental music. Uh, and I think Throbbing Gristle were also part of that feature, um, you know, which I thought was interesting. 
um, and uh, also dub music um, was 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 a was yeah. a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. And disco music actually, it's I'm like, and all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, all of a sudden, it's like the sort of the things that people kind of weren't allowed to talk about, you know, like disco because it wasn't cool. You know, it it was kind of starting cool to be okay. Now, right? It was cool in yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, it's like some some of the best records of that time came from disco. You know, exactly. it's like there's there's some brilliant records. Um, so it sort of felt like a moment at which everything was being reassessed and everything was being presented again as something to point towards something yeah. new. Um, so, and I think Devo influenced John Savage, who then influenced you know the the, the readers of, of of the music press at the time. Interesting, interesting. So moving down this list, obviously Japan. Come Japan for me come under that category a bit like Ultravox where they were just a bit too far ahead of the time. And then, of course, because we were on the same label, Virgin, we're always trying to persuade them to do cover versions and, you know, go mainstream. And they had some success with that, to be fair. But I I was more interested in the kind of experimental end of what they were doing, you know, the the beautiful Mick Khan... um, bass playing and the and the electronics and all that stuff so they they yeah. kind of got a little bit kind of knocked off balance as i see it with japan hmm. uh, but anyway that's uh we'll not go into that because we've got so much to get through um <laughs> the normal massive influence hmm. on us tell us about them yeah daniel i know daniel yeah, so the normal is Daniel Miller, um, and at the time Daniel Miller wasn't, you know, the record company guru and, uh, you know, A&R sensation he is today. He was just a bloke who worked in film, he was a film editor, and he was interested in music. Um, and he got himself uh, a, a synthesizer, and he set himself, there was a, a band called The Desperate Bicycles, uh, who wrote a piece for one of the music papers and it was basically a sort of punk piece about how to go about making your own single um you know it's like it told you how to how to do it how to press it how to get it packaged how to get it distributed and, and daniel saw this piece and he thought okay it's like I, I could do a single and it's like that was the, the the peak of his ambition was to do one single and then he'd stop and he'd, he'd go on to something else um, so he, he had this sort of these these ideas um, and he set it all up in his bedroom, um, his mum's house in North London, uh, and he hired in a couple of extra bits and pieces and he recorded a single and it was two songs, TVOD and Warm Leatherette. Brilliant. Um, which he, yeah, and, and both of them are absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah, you know, it's like they're, they're, they're primitive and early, but that's that they couldn't kind of couldn't not be it's like that's that entirely is their charm you know as of so many of these records at this, this time you know, it's like the the sort of the the crackly you know you, you can hear the cracks in the techniques and uh, yeah uh, that uh, doesn't matter the, it makes uh, it better in fact i think it makes it better yeah absolutely yeah which made it more authentic uh, and then he 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 went to get it pressed um, and he had, I think, you know, five test pressings of this seven-inch single. Uh, and um, one of them, uh, he played to uh, Rough Trade, um, to, to, the, to the guys at the Rough Trade rec- uh, rec- record shop. Uh, and he said, you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, to, you to stock this. 
you know, can you distribute it for me? And, you know, I was going to do 500 because that's as much as I can afford. Right. Uh, and they said, no, this record is going to be bigger than that. You know, we want to, we want you to do 3000 and we're going to finance you now to, so that you can get those all pressed up. And another of these test pressings, we got to a journalist called Jane Suck. Um, and um, she made it her record of the century uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> did a review of it like two months before it even came out, wow. um, you know, completely applauding this, this, this sort of this new slice of, you know, amazing DIY electronica. Yeah. Uh, and also did an interview with Daniel, you know, in which he sort of, you know, talked about, you know, um, his 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 sci-fi influences and, you know, his 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 dislike of punk, you know, which was which he felt was fine, but it was just like rock music sped up, you know, it wasn't interesting. That's exactly to him. my view on the whole thing with uh, yeah. with punk. I just thought it was like very interesting, the energy it generated, but it was like absolutely like punk yeah. rock. And I heard it all before it was, as well. I mean, with like yeah. new dolls and people like that. So yeah, it was, it was kind of the energy and the infrastructure and this sort yeah. of DIY attitude, yeah. wasn't it? It was like the DIY of the actual artwork as well. Yeah, and, a- absolutely. And posters and flyers and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so so Daniel made made his single. Uh, I think I think I'm right in saying that it sold something like thirty thousand copies in the end. Wow, uh, you know, which is kind of extraordinary. Um, really you know, extraordinary. I think Bill yeah, Royal, yeah. which we'll come on to in a second. I think yeah. it only sold it sold less than ten thousand in in right. the release. You know, it got re-released and then yeah. sold loads. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, my, my thirty thousand figure might be the subsequent releases as well. You know, so right, I'm not right. not into it, but it did sell extremely well, um, and it bought in you know a bag of cash, um, you know, with with which Daniel considered making more records, but didn't, uh, and instead decided that because he de- he de- designed his own label to put his record out, and he called it Mute, uh, and um, TVOD was Mute O One. Um, he decided he'd put his mum's address on the back of the record sleeve. <laughs> People who who bought this record, who were sort of working in the same zone as him, started sending him tapes. Um, so oh. it, you know they they thought that Mute was a, a proper record company, uh, you know, not just Daniel in his bedroom. And How so he, he started, he, yeah, he started getting music, most of which he didn't like very much. Uh, but then he got a tape from Fad Gadget. Um, and Fad Gadget was basically the start of what became Mute Records as we know it today. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Right, so we have to move on quickly because we've got yes, no, no. Yeah. a lot to get through. So I just want to say thank you for putting Being Bold on the list. Um, throwing Gristle, not main players in this scene because they were a bit more... No. They were a bit more uh, edgy and industrial, but as a flavour in the entire giant cake yeah. this is i think it's a very important thing to acknowledge um suicide massive influence this is the third yeah this is the third uh podcast i've done in the last three days three in a row where we've, where i've discussed suicide right. as an influence mainly because i've been on the last one i did we were talking about uh the, the homemade drum machine do you know about this? The homemade drum machine. I don't think so, no. Or they bought it off somebody who made it at home anyway. So it was like a right. cannibalized 
something from a home organ or something. I don't know where it was. But anyway, I've tried to replicate the sound of that recently. And it's quite <laughs> difficult. Um, so, yes, yeah, Suicide, fantastic. Cherie, fantastic. Frankie Teardrop, long, long track, ten over 10 minutes. Yeah, long track, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, sorry, to, uh, I'm just piling through this. <clears throat> Joy Division, of course. To be more relevant, really later when they turned it to yes, exactly. Morning. This is this is more of a, fla a flavor of what's to come yeah. next, rather than the sort of the, the significance of their early music. Yeah, Thomas Lear, Robert Rental, all players. We talked about Ultravox. Cabs are our mates. Do the Mussolini head kick was a massive record in Sheffield. Yeah. Everybody loved that record. And then you got Japan again, throbbing gristle, blah blah blah. Simple Minds were amazingly electronic in their early days, and I love them. Yeah. What do you think about them and how they went? Um, I think they're really interesting. It's like I I, I interviewed um, Jim Kerr um, a, a good few years ago, um, and um, I asked him a question about Simple Minds. He's like, "Well, I can't answer that question because." There's not one simple minds. It's like we've been several simple minds, and it's like it's, it's like it's a different answer for each each generation of the band. Yeah. Um, but that early experimental art school, I loved um, it. Loved it. I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and they they were a band that were were picked by the music press before they'd released anything um, as as something to watch out for. Uh, and then, uh, as is often the way, <laughs> almost always the way, uh, the music press sort of built them up a little bit and then took great pleasure in knocking them down. Um, but, you know, for the, for the first couple of albums, I think Simple Minds were doing really interesting uh, experimental music. And you could sort of hear some of the other things that were happening at the time, you know, in what they were doing. You could hear Brian Eno. You know, you could hear a bit of Throbbing Gristle, you could hear a bit of Bowie, you know, you could hear, you could, and, and maybe they, they were wearing their influences too much on their sleeves, which was something that they were sort of, you know, critically yeah. cried for. Um, yeah. But actually, I think it, it just worked. Um, and I, I would love to have seen them continue yeah. in that direction. You know, to just to see what would have happened. I mean, I'm delighted that they had the success they had, you know, as a sort of a more conventional rock band. You know that's that's brilliant, but I I would re would be really interested to have seen what that album would have been if they'd continued, you know, on the trajectory they started with. I mean, I tried to yeah. get I, I tried to get David Sylvian on the podcast, and I was talking to him on the phone, and he's an absolute lovely guy, and got very fond memories of being our label mates and everything. But he just didn't really want to talk about it. It's weird. Anyway, moving on. Um, Telex very important for us. Moscow Disco was on at every party that we ever did. Yeah. Um, Japan, of course, were going more commercial by this time. Life in Tokyo, love that. Number one song in heaven, Beat the Clock. That entire album revolutionised our perception and just mm. nailed our relationship with Giorgio Moroder right. completely. I mean, everybody yeah. goes on about low and heroes and... And uh, and there were significant records from Bowie, but this idea of deliberately engaging creativity with disco sensibility, with electronics, with a new approach, with futurism, and with the fucking sparks, 
excuse me. <laughs> uh, just blew my mind. I just loved it all. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, Vince Clark's first single, uh, number one song in heaven. Is that right? Um, he says he played it and played it and played it. Um, and I just think it's interesting that, you know, Sparks presented themselves as, you know, the keyboard player and the flamboyant singer. Um, and, and that has been where, where where Vince has sort of ended up, you know, with, with Andy and Erasure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, at the time they, were, they weren't very cool. Um, and actually, although the singles did well, the albums performed terribly. Did they? Um, so, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's the number one song in the number number one in heaven album. Didn't do very well at all, given it had you know oh, a, a couple of hits. Yeah, so it, yeah, uh, but you know, a, a great band, and also I think it's worth saying that they kind of never lost it. You know, it's like their their new stuff is as relevant and as interesting and as 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 challenging as as they they've ever been, and and I think that that's kind of amazing, and and they again they should be applauded more for it. Completely okay. Uh, the Buggles. I wasn't a big fan of the Buggles to be honest, uh, but however, um, I am an enormous fan of pop music by Rob M. Robin Scott. In fact, he's performing with us on a BEF bill in uh, Ireland this summer. So um, doing that. And then we're on to the really important stuff, which is Dignity of Labour, <laughs> one to four, by the Human League and the men, um, which I don't think I need to really talk about, but thank you for putting them on the list. Uh, then we're into Our Friends Electric, which is an extremely significant moment. What do you think? Oh, it's like, you know, it's like, it, who, who could have predicted no. Um, you know that th th this would have happened and it's like it's it's interesting to me looking back at all the people moving up to this point everyone had designs on being gary newman yeah. um everyone wanted to be the first to get over that starting line and to sort of translate this new electronic pop into something massively successful um, and, and, and it's interesting because I, I know that you've talked about this and I know that Andy McCluskey has talked about this um, and, and several people have talked about this and, and this record kind of came out of nowhere for everyone um, because there was no sort of infrastructure around electronic music at that time you didn't really know everyone um, and you know it's like uh, although there were little pockets you know for example yourself with Cabaret Voltaire and the, the other Sheffield bands, then you probably weren't aware of all the things that were going no. on in other cities. No, you I certainly weren't. Aware yeah, of, of Tube Way Army, you know, who, who, who were a punk band who accidentally stumbled across a synthesizer, reinvented themselves, put out this punk record with synthesizer on top uh, and went to number one, you know, and it's it, like... It's fucking brilliant, honestly. I, yeah. I, I was so pissed off when it came out because I thought, <laughs> Jesus, they've really nailed this. And we, we we were still struggling to kind of connect to a bigger audience, you know. Yeah, uh, anyway, absolutely. moving on. Um, and the cabs, of course, mentioned there. Joy Division. OMD, uh, uh, obviously, uh, were uh, on a similar course to us, although we didn't know at the time. Um, mm. uh, and Visage, you know, really... Visage is a very interesting entity, if you think about it, because mm. it was kind of a new way of looking at a band, really. It wasn't really a band. It wasn't put together 
for live purposes. It wasn't put together by a record company. It was more like a collective, wasn't it, really? Yeah, it, it was. It was like a, a it was like a group of mates. And actually not even necessarily mates. It was like a group of like-minded souls, you know, who sort yeah. of came together and just sort of followed the opportunities. And it's like I think that Martin Russian was quite instrumental in this, in that Martin Russian had an office upstairs from the Blitz Club. Um, so although Martin was bearded and scruffy uh, and not at all a new romantic, um, he took a great interest in the music that was happening downstairs. Um, and he gave, he gave Visage studio time um, when he was building his genetic studios out in Berkshire. And I think that that sort of became like an incubator almost. You know, it's like it was it was because because Visage was made up of such a sort of a diverse set of musicians. You know, the guys from Magazine and Rusty Egan and Steve Strange and Midge Year, you know, all doing stuff together. Um, you know, it's like I think that without that sort of early playground to play in that Martin Russian created, um, that 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 maybe it wouldn't have, have come to what it what it came to. Exactly. But yes, the, the, their first thing. Their first single was called called Tar, which no one really remembers. Um, but yeah, that was that was uh, one of the first records to come out of that new new romantic scene. Interestingly, um, interestingly, uh, I interviewed uh, Dave M. Allen, David, you know, who was oh yeah, you know, uh, uh, who worked on Dare, of course, with um, yeah. Martin Russian and many many other things, including Visage, and um, he, he, the way he described the whole genetic studios thing was really fascinating to me. It was it was kind of like a a, um, a kind of laboratory for mm. new ideas. And actually, he's just uh, Dave Dave Allen's just put out uh, recently a. Uh, a compilation of stuff that he created at the time with his band that was using the System 700. And um, he sounds like demos for songs that never got made by uh, the Human League on Dare. It's really yeah. fascinating stuff. I don't even know. Yeah, I've heard them and it's, it's really interesting how how, how strong that some of that, that material is. Strong, I'd say so. And, uh, and, and But more to the point, the palette that he was using. He wasn't quite fully formed, but it's very similar to Dare. A lot of it. Anyway, um, I've had an idea. I think what we're going to do, with your permission, is to do this in two parts, because I don't yeah. want to rush through the second half of this. So um, I don't have time to do it now, but I'm going to uh, send you some possible dates. And I okay. won't ask you the smash hits questions now. I'll do that at the end of the next part. So uh, we'll basically finish this episode here and look forward to um, parts three and four of the uh, of the scope of the book, which is on um, Spotify, which you can check out. And so thank you so much for your patience and your fucking encyclopedic knowledge that's an absolute pleasure it's like any excuse to talk about this stuff and i'm there <laughs> so we're going to do part one and part two so that's Brilliant. it even better value for the listeners all right absolutely cheers Richard. thanks mate cheers mate see you soon cheers
that was part one of our discussion about that period and the music involved. I hope you enjoyed that because the next part will be just as interesting as we zoom through from 80, probably 81 to 83. And uh, we'll be discussing all the key players and the key records that happened in that time in the second episode. And um, look forward to, um, to you turning up to listen to that. How is everyone? I'm piling through loads of recordings of podcasts at the moment, so I'm occupied, but the bloody hell, the weather is cold and grey and horrible, but it's going to change soon, so we'll all be fine. If anybody would like to support this podcast, I would really appreciate it. It costs money for me to do this, but at least uh, it'll keep me incentivized to keep doing it. Uh, it's patreon.com stroke electronically hours. For the cost of a coffee or a pint of beer every month, you can help make this real and keep going and keep it free for people who can't afford it. Um, and also, if you've got any comments, general comments, you can email me electronically, martin with a y at gmail.com. Uh, very happy to, um, I might read some of them out. No, I can't read all of them out. Uh, but I'll try and respond to everybody if possible. That's it for this week. Uh, episode two of this discussion about that amazing period of electronic music will be coming soon. Bye! This is from Brian Horton. Hi, Martin. I'm I'm sometimes quite surprised and taken aback to learn of the artists you have produced and work with. Do you have a playlist, Martin, where presents in BEF and beyond? Hope I haven't already missed something. Anyway, Merry Xmas and a prosperous new year. Kiss, Brian. I have... Uh, there isn't a Spotify playlist. I actually started putting one together before Christmas. The problem is a lot of the tracks <coughs> that I produced um, aren't on Spotify. Um, the more famous ones, obviously, are. Uh, and then I kind of got... I thought, if it's not going to be exhaustive, it's a bit confusing, I thought. You know, because actually there was a Jam and Lewis one that I, I looked at, which somebody put together, and like just about everything they ever recorded got released and was a big hit, but not everything I did was. And so actually, some of the best stuff that I did didn't get released. And it's not through, not because it was rubbish, but because different reasons from the record companies. So uh, it's a long-winded answer. Um, maybe. We're kind of working on it, aren't we? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. We'll get to it, get around to it. Okay, another Patreon message. This is from Aubrey Donaldson. Oh, no. oh it's um, a response to something that we don't know what the original question was. Well, shout out to Aubrey. I think now. it's being boiled. Possibly my favourite HL song. Thanks for asking. You read the next one, okay? Okay. Uh, oh, it's another one. Hold on. From Aubrey. Here we go, from Aubrey Donaldson. Merry Christmas, Martin. Such an enjoyable episode of a consistently great podcast. Just beautiful to hear the spirit of camaraderie between you and Glenn. Very excited for part two. Well, part two is there and available and free. And it's great. And it's great. Uh, another Patreon. Merry Christmas from Damien Joseph Santoro. Thanks, Damien. These are uh, lots of Merry Christmas things, so I'm going to have to skip past some of these, I think. Um, yeah, it's just all kind of jolly hockey stick stuff. Have a cool Yule, that kind Nick of thing. Nick Gillard. 
David Palmer, Simon Meldrum, Lester, A. Austin, Damien Joseph Santoro. Uh, big up the patrons. Yeah, we need to big you up. Uh, Kevin Gladdock. Um, uh, okay. Just go on. Uh, no, no, no. It's uh, it's okay. Here we go. And then there's another Patreon one. Thank you for the superlative work you do sharing an inspiring, captivating creation. Such a, an inspiring, captivating creation is electronically yours. The recent episode with Richard Norris exploring the healing effects of music and frequencies is fascinating and the story of your efforts with the memory care patients and their helpers gave me hope for humanity. Good Lord. Um, yes, well, we try and make a little difference. My husband, JJ Fungar, and I are genuinely pleased to make our humble contribution to your Patreon. Thank you. We recently posted a short clip of EY episode 70 with the lovely Glenn Gregory, during which you kindly read an email from Jeff. Uh, blah, blah, blah. It's funny to note that when we first heard your excellent shout-out, we were lost in traffic on our way to visit family for Christmas. It's such a beautiful moment that neither of us will ever forget. You're a treasure. You're making a difference. Thank you warmly and Merry Christmas from Mara. Thank you, Mara. That's very kind that of you. Nice.